yeah, this is such a great asset. It is the best asset ever. Welcome to Sermons from the Free Market in conversation with Peter Pham. Hello, everybody. This is uh, Peter Pham. And I'm just kind of like lounging around with a lot of interesting subjects that I'd love to discuss with everyone about uh, based on some of like the recent pieces that we've released as well. And today I have the pleasure of introducing everyone to Thomas Southerton. He will be our communications director to help us get out like all these fantastic ideas. So uh, Tom, uh, welcome to the podcast, which you will be helping me on as well and in terms of the content. And uh, please introduce yourself to the audience. Hello, everyone. I'm Tom. Thanks for having me on, Peter. I'm from Manchester in England, and music's my thing. I'm a musician. I've been based in Japan 10 years, and yeah, music's totally what I'm into, but also doing a few other things on the side, running a guest house and some property and some companies, music tuition and uh, media and content type of work. And yeah, hello everyone. So, so Tom, how does kind of like a, a mini mogul like you end up <laughs> finding about what I'm up to and what is it that basically resonated with you and to, ca- to cause the creation of this unique um, uh, relationship? Well, I wouldn't call myself a mogul, to be honest, but um, realistically, I I had to figure out what to do with uh, investing money, growing money. Once I started to make some money, I needed to start investing it. And uh, I realized any of the financial advisors were just trying to sell me product and there was nothing real going on. So then I started trying to, you know, educate myself and learn about how money works and the world works and consuming all kinds of content and reading a hell of a lot. And I came across your work at some point. And what I really liked about your writing and the interviews that you were doing was really, you understood the complexity of what what we're facing, the, dif- the difficulties that we're facing. And, and it wasn't just a simple answer of, okay, become a, a silver bug and, and you're a doomer. And that was it because... Uh, it's a lot more complex than that. So yeah. So as as you know, I'm I'm really interested in in music as an asset, and obviously there's a lot of entropy and and basically chaos that's happening um, the world over right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm if I'm not mistaken, you are the genre of music that you're into is kind of it's jazz basically, right? If if I'm not mistaken. Well, jazz is one of my main genres yeah i play the double bass so a lot of the work is jazz based but i'm a session musician too so uh, i'm used to being invisible which is something we have in common and uh you know i played classical music heavy metal uh hip-hop big band jazz uh small band jazz all these different styles of music from one day to the next and still and do it yeah from myself kind of thing right right and when we spoke it's it's not even just about like the um, diverse forms of music, sometimes relatively unstructured. We talked about that as well. But I also understand you're kind of like a, a speed junkie, if I'm not mistaken, too. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, I mean, I like the speed of music. And, and yeah, like back to the chaos nice. stuff as well. Um, it's the improvisation. That's where the fun is in, in playing the music, when it's 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 high risk. And it's you're really mm. dependent on the people you're playing with and yourself to come up with something imaginative you put yourselves on the spot and say okay let's create something amazing let's create a magical moment now and and go somewhere with the music and and hopefully it does that's that's your kind of goal and and it's very different from playing a song which is all composed it's all arranged it's all fixed and there's no negotiation there there's no imagination but um so yeah doing it at high speed is even more thrilling for me I, i like i like doing it that but yeah i also like uh riding my motorbike and driving like a maniac. That's also fun for me. If, when I um, when we first got to know each other, you had um, shown me some of your work. And what I noticed when you were um, playing your music was that it seemed like you were sort of like in a flow state. You're not probably like 
I think there's instances in which your like eyes are closed, in which you're kind of just relying on your your mind to make sense of all the chaos to create basically beautiful art. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if you notice that, but that's what I notice. And and I, I find that to be a, a similarity that we have is like markets are crazy and there's very a lot of noise. And there's very few kind of like um, bits that seem to work well or very, very few models that will allow you to navigate all the chaos. Mm -hmm. I I think, to be honest with you, is that I think that is why we can relate. Yeah. I hate to get psychological or Sigmund Freud with you, but... uh, (laughs) and diagnose well, diagnose our relationship on the right. podcast but well, i mean with the music back to your point about getting in, in the zone and the flow state um it's really overcoming the self-consciousness and being calculating about everything and kind of mm. using that trust and intuition and then your senses all synchronously <laughs> is that a yeah. word yeah you know you just, yes it's yes. all on you know it's just all flowing yeah exactly you've just you've got to let go to go there get out your own way i think i think that that's now that that skill set or that that perspective is just almost important for everything because think about it like the world is basically imploding in some instances and you have to be able to internalize that that flow state in order just to handle everything and you hope that all the training and skills that you built um, throughout the time will allow you to basically play beautiful music mm. in in like kind of like um an auditorium basically and i guess it's the same for you in like you've memorized all kinds of things about the numbers and the things that you can invest in and and then so all that kind of information is uh, recallable real time, and you can kind of figure things out on the fly of what you should or shouldn't do if you're trying to make moves when it's chaotic. Right, right, right. I mean, people qu- try to quantify music as well, and they try to say that there's like, let's say, certain patterns within music um, that you can measure through numbers as well that um, would ultimately create a pop song. Um, not that that's what you're trying to create, but I'm just saying that. It, it's it, as, as you know we'll, we'll talk about this further uh uh in this podcast but more about being able to understand the math and the numbers that are being emitted by um the central planners and then to be able to know how to fend yourself in in that situation mm-hmm. so we have a whole bunch of other things that we need okay. to cover as well yeah. and and i know that you're very curious about a lot of um, All right. bets that I'll, are being paid in the market. So let, yeah, let's yeah, let's go with the question then. So yeah, um, AMC yeah. Entertainment. You you got involved with them around six months ago. At the time, there wasn't everybody talking about it. Uh, there, w- there was no Wall Street bets attention to it. What was your thought process for taking that move? Sure, I, I should um, preface by saying that. There is a very prophetic tweet that was within our last um, article that literally said that, okay, look, we're heading into this election um, because Biden is going to win. You probably want to own like the New York Times and it's fine to have a piece of Alibaba. The Chinese stock market's doing well. And then you can own like a few other of these, these companies. And then what was so prophetic was it literally said own AMC as a speculative stock for 2021. And that was the tweet. It appears in the article should reappear in this article too, is that, 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 that's what I wrote. Um, and I think I should just share a little bit about that, that formula, like basically making sense of all that craziness and chaos. Um, it's, it's very simple and it's quite surprising to me is that basically this economy, which runs on energy, basically, um, can be understood as lockdown is basically a shutdown of demand. And basically opening up is basically the reignition of demand. And 
demand is quantified as basically revenue or or in the case of like let's say real estate uh occupancy or you know in the case of retail uh customers or in the case of cinemas basically attendance or box office so it's quite simple to basically now that you're saying it after the fact though but it's at the time it it, it still always made sense to me that if these economies open up um most activity would happen in your your community first and foremost as opposed to you know literally taking giant leaps to you know fly to other places and then start going on vacations the world over or business meetings the world over uh you'd be more than happy if you could go to your local pub or be able to catch um the latest movie so so the rationale was based on that idea overall but to simply understand that look there's so many better ways to consume content which is what everyone's saying right there everyone's saying that um Streaming. you know these are dying yeah exactly these are dying business models and and they, they might be right um and there's something very um nostalgic about going to the cinema having a popcorn and watching a movie that's designed for the big screen and there will probably always be somewhat of an audience for it just like there is for vinyl but remember it's not to say that we don't have exposure on those other kind of companies and obviously we'll we'll talk about that after everyone knows basically is that i'm really into culture assets so i'm just referring to basically the highest risk component within the value chain that just adds that much more of a kicker to your relatively bland portfolio if if you if you're calling like um uh, massive gains plans uh, that th- that's what i'm referring to i'm i'm referring to the difference of like you know looking at collecting a yield of like 30% per annum bland r- compared to making 200% a day mm. on on a stock right so so that's what i mean by by speculative versus uh just quality portfolio um overall so anyways going back to the idea of amc you just simply understand that any um signal of demand uh is going to be super positive for the stock and then if you track back all the instances in which the r&d for a vaccine was basically pending and and had basically high efficacy efficacy rates um you could start to see relative outperformance by the stock there were days in which the stock would pop up like 50% Um so that created a great track record to see what this could look like and then when you have a stock that's basically being quote-unquote artificially suppressed at very next to zero potentially on the verge of bankruptcy it's kind of interesting to see how this could bounce back and long story short using a poker analogy where there were a lot of outs to this uh situation as well um could one ultimately foresee that there would be some kind of like stock market populist movement as a byproduct of um what's happened to the the former president no you you couldn't see that but you could see that what, what is surprising is that you realize that there are other people that kind of see the same thing that you see but the key thing is this is that I'm I'm never dependent on message boards or rumors um to try to get into a position and one could also see the the insight when one looks at this vision 2020 portfolio to recognize that that was ultimately the only speculative stock that you had relative to all your other investments basically let's say going up like 30 40% in you know a reasonable amount of time So so what what one needed to do during this duration was to see how stocks pulled back in 2020 and understand what their valuations were at that moment and see what their valuations could be in the instance that you have a minor uptick in demand and that's sort of basically how one should have addressed AMC's of the world GameStop which is also again at the um, at the bottom of the the value chain of gaming right so th- those companies were were there and had had i had room for more uh speculation which probably i should be um 
rest assured GameStop would have been something that I would have liked because I've always liked video game companies as well. It's just, I felt like, Hey, um, I'm so focused on building uh, the quality assets and I'm not necessarily dependent on these like magical pops or grand slams, which are so great for your portfolio, but I'm, I'm more interested in uh, preserving and growing wealth and then uh, just making some room. Uh, and probably I might have to do that more because it seems like the way that you're looking at the market seems to be coinciding with how the market is behaving at this juncture. Mm. Big difference between the open and the closed economy. And that's where the action's at. Yeah. In this case. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It, it was, it, it was, what was weird was that how analysts were just so perplexed on how to value these companies in 2020. It was like, even to this day, it's sort of like the most ridiculous thing. What we needed to do was get back to our economics 101 class. You don't have to be uh, building financial models if there's no demand. Because if there's no demand, then how are you supposed to project out like cash flows and, and things like that? That, that was ridiculous. And, and the markets weren't going to go to zero. So there had to be somewhat of a of a premium to these companies that were functioning in an open economy, but because of policy and regulation were, were um, less efficient, right? And therefore you had to kind of like foresee how this could play out. And it, long story short, expect to see these companies, now that basically uh, the message boards have gotten involved, it might be a little different, but one had message boards not been involved these stocks could have had like a nice gradual, gradual slow creep up anyways, irrespective of what would have happened. Let's talk about silver, Peter. Um, this also had some action and interest with the uh, Wall Street bets, but also um, now that Biden's in, the talk is all about um, green energy um, and we're expecting a, a lot of fiat to come. So maybe silver's time has come it's uh it's the time to get into silver isn't it you you think otherwise it, in some in yeah. some ways don't you so tell us what your thoughts are about silver it, it's it's time to come for a bunch of assets tom the issue is that which assets are going to be basically um the true benefactors of the, the this idea or this thesis right and and it seems like um um what one obviously could have these uh precious metals within your portfolio but to as you said like when you were in your pursuit of trying to understand markets and looking for good investments i i find that the the simpleton answer unfortunately doesn't always muster out the biggest gains and obviously we can talk more about that after as well um i, I like to discuss about basically how how and when one should have got into precious metals which I felt was basically 2018, 2019, giving you basically a two to three year window to have start to position build. And the criteria I use is something that I discussed about maybe about a year or two ago, which is basically understanding the commodity cycle and looking at industry or the miners um, in relation to the commodities. Uh, simply put is that if a CFO is going to make that decision to uh, basically start to mine and extract, let's say, silver or gold. It's, it's going to cost a lot. Uh, the mining industry is known for the, the sheer uh, capital intensity to, to do a project in the development. So long story short, if, if a guy or a company is going to make that decision and outlay millions and millions and billions of dollars to try to extract whatever commodity it is, there better be a good reason and they, they better go with this idea that the commodity should at least stay near the prices that it's at in order to make it economically viable and hence why obviously a lot of miners are, are sometimes hedge their positions well what that also implies though is that because a mine might take actually a few years to get off the ground that there's a lag time between the current price okay and demand versus future supply um below ground supply that then will ultimately become above ground supply into the marketplace so what's unique is that the demand starts to drive up the price 
the price is the catalyst on why these financial officers or uh, executive officers are making the decision to start to finally extract the commodity. And that that multi-year window, because silver just doesn't appear above ground overnight, um, particularly industry-wide, provides a great signal about the imbalance between supply and demand. And, and at, at that time in 2018, 2019, I started to see that. I started to see companies take the willingness to develop new projects, new mines, while the price of silver was starting to base out. And then, as you've seen over those last two years, there were periods in which silver went up quite a bit, mm-hmm. then pulled back, but then also went up quite a bit. So, and that didn't require an end of the world scenario. I'm referring to 2019. It just required the natural elements of supply and demand at play. So if that, remember what you want to do is you want to build a portfolio and you want to invest in things that will go up irrespective of some kind of like doom and gloom scenario. You One cannot forecast what was going to happen in 2020. One could prepare for something bad, which is what I did, but you should also have reasons on why it will work. So taking 2018, 2019 contextually, all assets were pretty much at their all-time highs. Silver wasn't. And then there was this opportunity in which miners were finally willing to really uh, invest into extracting precious metals again. And it was very contrarian to basically buy that at 2018, 2019. Now, the average price that I have silver at is about like 12 bucks. Uh, in 2020, um, during March, the price of silver had imploded. It was near like 20 bucks or something like that. Then it imploded right back down to $12. I didn't buy anymore for two reasons. Number one is uh, I, I was buying physical. And at that stage, things were starting to lock down. Mm-hmm. So uh, my, my storage is in Singapore. And sometimes, unfortunately, I wasn't there at the time. But the key reason also why I didn't buy silver at the same price in which I had it two years ago was that appropriate asset allocation required you to buy something that was going to be higher quality than silver. And that's the opportunity to have bought a large cap and big tech and massive indices that were pulled back 30%. Remember, I was buying silver when everything was already at an all-time high. I didn't want to participate in nosebleed activity, and I wanted to buy something that was quote-unquote cheap. And there was a good fundamental underpinning of what was going to happen. So, but the issue is that you cannot say the same thing at of silver at $12 in March of 2020. The pragmatists needed to understand that you're probably better off have buying big tech at that time. And big tech has outperformed, irrespective of the fact that silver then has ultimately gone up again. You didn't miss anything. Your average price is still $12. But now you have a better portfolio because at least you got Netflix within your portfolio and you got some other stocks that would go up much faster. Yeah. So this brings us basically to um, what's happened with the message boards, Wall Street bets and the short squeeze. Uh, what, what had happened was basically after the success of GameStop and AMC, one of those other calls that you make is silver two years ago starts to get some momentum. And everyone's talking about how they're going to be the Robin Hoods are talking about how they're going to be the second coming of the Hunts brothers, which they're not. And then to be able to short squeeze silver, they, they, they played a game that was basically above their pay grade, which was try to push the establishments. Mm. Now, one simply needs to see all the asset classes or opportunities that this message board has presented for uh, for one, which was like, let's say GameStop up a thousand percent, AMC at its peak up 200%, and then silver closing on the day in which everyone's talking about short squeeze at basically 5.25%. Now I have a tweet prior to that close on the day 
when there was going to be this big short squeeze saying that ultimately 5% or below concerns me because there is, by the way, um, a fix that happens in three time zones for precious metals. I think it's the Hong Kong one, the London one, and the New York one. And one simply needs to study the single-day volatility for precious metals and see that there is somewhat of a quote-unquote trading ban for precious metals. So you're not going to see anything like a 200% Mm. pop. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And if you're talking about hedge funds that that are shorting stocks, and then you say to me that central banks are shorting precious metals, then who are you as a Robin Hood guy to be able to withstand the might of central banks when you can barely handle hedge funds? But I would preface by saying that the success with the idea of going up against hedge funds was quantifiably and financially much more successful than dealing with a hard asset like silver, where its potential primary shorter is the central banks. Yeah. So, so I rather have had, again, the pragmatist needs to understand that I rather have had a thousand percent gain in a short period of time buying a stock, right? And a, and a risky stock for goodness sakes, or a, a stock that pops up 200% as a consolation from GameStop. Again, a company almost on the verge of bankruptcy, according to many, then to have had a 5% short squeeze that then ultimately retracts. Mind you, they all retract, by the way. Okay. So the hedge funds and the financial institutions are able to distort uh, the supply and demand of some of these popular stocks, but you still had a much larger runway. And the pragmatist then needs to understand that, wow, hard assets seem to struggle when they shouldn't be struggling with attempts at, first off, last year seemed very apocalyptic. And why didn't gold do what it did? And then when you're intentionally trying to push a short squeeze with the same people that had the might to push a stock up a thousand percent, and all they could do for silver was 5%, you know that there's something wrong. And if one wanted to say that the, the, the you know, metals are rigged, they're right. And there's nothing that we can do about it to change it. And by the way, if you have physical or if you own paper, it doesn't matter. Unless you have the ability to combat central banks, then talk to me. But for the time being, I'd have to say that a lot of hard assets, yeah, they're going up, but they're not even going up compared to Bitcoin. And that's a whole nother thing too. Mm. Hard assets will underperform basically invisible assets from now until basically the end of days because of the very fact that we are able to isolate the difference between what they call the real economy or the average person versus this financialized mathematical economy, which has kind of like completely detached it, itself. So while you're at home on lockdown in this real economy, stock markets open, people are trading on their computers and hedge funds and central banks are stimulating the whole economy and billions and billions and billions are being created while you're at home asking permission to go out, uh, having to do temperature checks and wear a mask. So this is what you mean about hard assets being anchors because they don't have the ability to expand in these uh, unlimited ways, which the financial uh, vehicles can do, yeah? Yeah, so let's talk about that. Um, Let's talk about some hard assets and see their their limitation or do some comparables so the audience can clearly see it. Mm. So long story short, if I buy a house, it's great, right? I own it, I might get a little bit of a yield. and that's the extent of it. If I wanted someone to value it, they'll value it at the book value and just say, hey, this is your house. Uh, maybe you had a bit of a capital gain. Great. Now, if you think about 
um, real estate developers or something that have, let's say, a handful of houses, or even if it only had one great piece of property within its portfolio, it suddenly gets a much more loftier premium because it is a house now in the form of something that is paper, which is a corporation, uh, which then is listed on the stock market that gets a loftier valuation. So the same asset in two different contexts, the same, the one house owned by Tom is worth, why is one house owned by Tom worth less than one house owned by um, Tom Tom's or Southerton Incorporated? Yeah. Exactly. Mm. And, and that, that, that just goes to show you there's something up, right? There's some perk in being in this like paper invisible economy. Okay. Now the other example is this. It's, it's nice that people have physical silver and it's nice that maybe some people have paper silver. The whole point though, is all of that metal, by the way, the physical isn't really even accounted for, for goodness sake. So that that's one thing it, it almost, it's hard to measure even demand because if you're just buying it, it's not like it's helping push up the bid or ask even within like the futures market or something like that. Cause that's what you need to push up a stock or a commodity in the future markets is that you need that demand. But if Tom is buying it um, from a dealer, it's not really pushing up the, the it, indirectly it might, but it's not really, it's not like a stock. It's not like a bunch of people bidding for GameStop stock and then basically that going up to a thousand percent. Again, that just goes to show you the fact that why is it that people can just bid up this paper company which, by the way, is very brick and mortar, right? So there's a bunch of GameStop locations all over. Mm-hmm. But its value can go up a 1,000% because it's, again, listed on the stock market. And then the participants, the financialized, invisible participants, hedge funds, or even retail, are either buying and selling stock and making a heck of a lot of money doing so. And then what's funny, more interesting, is that the companies that are even more invisible, that don't even have a brick and mortar presence, let's say like tech, are getting even a higher valuation than the companies that are still grounded again by this physical economy. Um, again, uh, if you compare precious metals that are supposed to provide you all the things that you desire uh, and all the things that are really great, well, again, it's also underperforming so many different forms of insurance, particularly like financialized insurance. One could buy options or something and perhaps get a greater gain based on the same idea that things are going to implode or things are going to do fantastically well. Uh, One could buy financial companies or even insurance companies under this idea that I want safety or, you know, some people are going to, there's going to be a lot of calamities that are going to happen and therefore we can benefit from that. So there's so many different products, particularly financialized products, uh, invisible products that are just vastly outperforming. I mentioned that Bitcoin as well. There's just too many that uh, are outperforming hard assets at this time. And I think that a lot of this audience has been lured in to the allure of hard assets, thinking that it's safe. When why is it that the people that are taking the biggest risks, remember, we're in a low interest rate environment, are actually being rewarded for it? And, and that one needs to reflect upon the lessons of what's happening. And, and I think the way, let, let's try to sum it up very easily so everyone can understand, is that as more debt is expanding invisibly over all our heads, and we're taxpayers that have to service it, it is allowing the government to become that much bigger over you, okay? Because that debt needs to be serviced by the people. The government's doing it on your behalf. And basically it allows governments to become that much more bigger. And the end game is that government should reflect directly and moderately indirectly is reflect 100% of GDP. That's the end game. There's some countries that have a higher ratio uh, directly and indirectly relative to its overall economy. And there's some countries 
particularly using COVID as a catalyst that have now become that much more bigger uh, based on this environment. And the end game, again, is to be the entire economy and all of society and dominate all of culture. That's the end game. It's the inevitable end game. They start, even if they're starting from a small number. And therefore, as more paper is being printed, remember, gold is supposed to be the, 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 the protection. But the issue is that the government will, gold might make sense when the government implodes, but it still has a long way to go before it implodes. And while it is continuing to expand, one needs to have more invisible assets to benefit from the expansion of this invisible war on the people or the invisible expansion of the economy. So for you to play the hard asset game in, in like, you know, QE to infinity um, will, will lead to underperformance. You might feel safe about it, mm. but it will lead to dramatic underperformance. You can get hung up about what you think should happen because it's the right or the wrong thing. Uh, it, because of this, this must happen, even though it's all unprecedented and it's all new. But as we've seen, it what should happen might not happen for a very long time. Yes, mm. I, I think I think we should. Um, I, I I want to segue to this other asset class I like as well. And then after we can discuss about like the class war. Yeah. Okay. Um, is that, so we talked about some hard assets already. We talked about precious metals and how they're kind of grounded and they're kind of suppressed by central banks. And by the way, central banks have just gotten bigger. So the whole issue is that that's a tough game to play. Um, and then we talked about the, the dichotomy of real estate in which paper uh, derivatives of real estate are worth more than even physical real estate. Uh, and then obviously there's such a headache to manage real estate. We talked about, we haven't mentioned it here, but when you when one looks into the future of real estate and one looks at basically like English manners, basically, unless you are trying to build some kind of like generational wealth and you have other sources of income, the precedence the world over for real estate that gets that could fortunately get into this like uh, century or two century old um, uh, age only starts to demonstrate how much more of a liability it's going to be to the point that it ultimately implodes. Uh, again, unless it's like super, super high grade real estate, which the average person might not have access to. And then you can look at some end game scenarios in which basically the nobleman um, that's not, let's say, very high up there is now living in a broken down manner uh, with the inability to service the maintenance because it would be almost the meaning for him to work. Or another scenario is that if you spend some time in Italy, you can buy basically antique houses for like a buck because they've just imploded on themselves. And they, 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 they demonstrate how much more of a liability it is relative to an asset. And the same which is Japan, something that, yeah. yeah, exactly. This is what Robert Kiyosaki talked about. And then when, when you think about it, it, it seems to, that's, he doesn't say it like that. He doesn't talk about end game. He just says, Hey, if you're living in your house, it's a liability. But then I just thought about it more. I'm like, wow, irrespective if you're living in, in it or not, it's just like, wow, maintenance, everyone knows, right? The older something gets, the higher the maintenance is going to get, even if it was an investment property. And then the more rundown it's going to get, and then the more broken it's going to be. And then unless you're deriving, um, you know, alternative sources of cash flow, assuming this is going to be a heirloom that you aspire to keep, it, it, it's, it seems to be very tedious. So that that's a, a perspective on real estate. And we'll write probably more about that too. But also buy to let uh, as yeah. a model, we've just seen it basically doesn't function like in the last year if if tenants don't need to pay you know they've got a good reason for for not paying yes and you can yeah you know there's no recourse to go through evictions then that whole model you know if you're leveraged in that position then you know yes. it's just not going to work is it it's game over right 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 the leverage is a financialized component but the issue is that 
you have something that lives in this physical real economy, which is like a house, and then you're dependent on someone that's potentially being locked down to service your debt. And, and then they're like, hey, I don't have a job. But then the regulatory bodies are trying to ensure everyone's looking out for everyone's safe, quote unquote safety mm. puts you in such a bind because because ultimately the asset that you have, it, it basically is designed to exist within this lockdown economy. And that's why it kind of detaches itself um, from 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 the ability to gain much more than it than it should. I understand that there's a capital gain that's happening in real estate, but one simply needs to compare that to everything else. And ideally, we should be looking for the best investments possible and relatively like the lowest risk and even the lowest uh, amount of headaches, frankly. And that's that's what we're trying to pursue. And this segues to probably the final form of hard or physical asset that has the ability to benefit from this invisible economy. And that's what we've been highlighting a lot, again, for the last two years, maybe for the, uh, uh, you know, 2018 or 19, it wasn't so popular, but it sure as heck has been super, like it's been gaining a lot of momentum uh, in 2020. And that is culture assets. Okay, so let's uh, talk about cultural assets, Peter something we're both very interested in and it works in the open and the closed it's invisible it's tangible it's multifaceted so go on what makes you so excited about cultural assets well based on these conversations and deep analysis i've come to conclude that this is by far the best asset class period there it's impervious to so many different things the risk elements which i'll highlight as well are understandable and um, the upside, the durability, the, the, the duality is, is just so perfect when you, when you break it down. So, so just to start is that basically you have a um, physical asset, let's say a painting, piece of memorabilia, but the value doesn't derive from the commodity of it, right? It doesn't derive from the canvas. Mm or it doesn't derive from the piece of paper or the mag, the, the, the book, the value of it derives from the ideas and basically the culture, which is different from, let's say, again, you talked about precious metals, that's a commodity or the commodities market overall, the commodities value is strictly based on the commodity. There's nothing else added to it. The stock is different in which it's like a company, it's like functioning and stuff like that. By the way, if um, countries implode once every 120 years, then obviously companies within that portfolio of uh, within within the society or the economy are more than likely also implode as well. Very few companies um, make it pass, <laughs> supersede a country, by the way. So, so that that I should preface by saying that as well. What's interesting is that culture assets have everything they they don't have the short squeeze that's necessary they have all the upside they have a bit of the physical gateway okay and that's kind of good too because remember if you're traveling through airports which i do um carrying gold is a nuisance uh carrying stock certificates doesn't make sense but carrying hockey cards comic books um antique books or even paintings are way more easier. Customs doesn't re- customs restricts most international travel down to ten thousand U.S. dollars and you know X ounces of precious metals. And then jewelry is such a derivative off of let's say commodities that it's it's less liquid. But you have this asset class that you can bring so easily. Okay, it's not really connected to this quote unquote ID market. So no one really can track you. That's the the benefit of the physical, which is what precious metals people tell you. Mm. But its value is still connected to the financialized economy in two ways. Number one is that if everyone knows that um, you know cheap, uh, cheap money is going to draw capital into everything, then obviously this is one major benefactor. Lockdowns ensure that this 
asset class is also a major benefactor. It's dramatically outperformed everything um, throughout this period of time. Because you're locked down, you're consuming the culture. Yeah, Yeah, consumption is way up. Mm. And the way to understand culture is that culture is part of a nation or a civilization. It transcends that of a government, but the government can latch on to the culture in order to only help propagate it or the risk element to cancel it. So if you can establish a cultural property or assets to own, be it a Picasso painting, be it a first edition of The Wealth of Nations, be it a coin, a stamp, or an athlete, typically most of the ones that have high value are considered some of the greatest artists or works within the civilization or within the nation of people, which kinds, kind of hedges it from a government because the government will latch on to those symbols of greatness to then justify their existence, just like the Nazis did with this idea of some kind of Atlantis origin or some kind of like Aryan origin, or just like how the People's Republic of China allows, because remember, they had cultural revolutions where anything that they don't approve of, they cut out, Mm. but then they allow their history to basically kind of symbolically represent the fact that there's a king and ruler, and all the dynasties, the monarchs, are preserved within the culture. So you can have a cultural asset that outlives a government or an economy and increases in value, which is why you have antiques that do very well and why they go up in value. And they benefit from every element of quantitative easing, debt, they benefit from all of that. And then they benefit from the fact that governments will use these cultural pieces or icons or symbols or symbolism to basically allow them to continue to expand and propagate themselves via this debt expansion as measured by, let's say, governments to GDP. So you're getting everything. You're getting, if you think everything's going to end, you want to own the assets that are going to go up when everything ends, or you want the assets that are going to withstand that, this is what you got to have. Mm. Everyone should be buying this. The only risk element, again, that we've seen that sprouted up recently the is cancel culture. Yes, mm. yes. Cancel culture is the risk to cultural assets. But rest assured that if you're owning some of the greatest works or greatest artists, greatest athletes of all time, understand that the government will use that propaganda to then re-justify their existence. So you might actually be benefiting from this centralization using these cultural icons. That's why every country has its heroes, has its great people, has its great works, landmarks, whatever, that or paintings uh, or books, arts that continue to exist. Mm. And... That's sort of like long-term, but even short-term is that lockdown implies consumption. Consumption implies a yield that is invisible relative to a rental property that, by the way, if you have the proper tax accountants, could almost be a risk-free capital gain and risk-free yield. Um, Benefits from everything functions like a hard asset like real estate, but its capital gain functions from the expansion of the culture uh, as measured by the government. And, and that's why everyone should be owning this. And its capital gain is fantastic. And its yields 
are amazing if you own one of those cultural properties that can get basically streaming revenue. And the greatest of all time, you know, you can apply that to every genre or subgenre and the medium of the art form, uh, the type of uh, music, uh, the type of sport, and then the player of whichever position of sport. It like, just goes on yeah. and on, the, the subdivisions of where you can find the greatest um, of whichever field. It's not like, oh, it's the you know, there's a limit on greatness. There's greatness. You've just got to keep looking across different areas of uh, subdivision. Absolutely, absolutely. And as you understand is that there's literally like, you know, uh, sports and recreational uh, divisions within government and even cultural divisions in government. And their sole purpose, by the way, is to propagate that. Um, you know, people say that um, entertainment is a diversion. Maybe it is. But the whole point, though, is that they're diverting, but they're also trying to show the best of this civilization by highlighting its athletes. Think about the Olympics, for goodness sakes, and how countries use that as a rallying cry. So imagine if you own, um, you know, some of the, the greater, you know, assets that can benefit off of uh, great athletes, which are quote unquote national heroes, then then you're just absolutely winning. It's such a win, this, this, um, this uh, portfolio to, to have assets within this space. Something I, I find really interesting too is that it can transcend class as well, or it, it can be on any level of class. But you know, historically we think, okay, uh, antiques and art collections—it's uh, it's the elite. Where whereas we're talking about things like uh, baseball cards, uh, mm. streams of streaming of pop songs—it's like that's the culture of the common man, and and that's all changed relatively recently. So tell us, mm, tell mm. us what you think about the kind of invisibleness of this, the class transcendence or, or whatever with this. Yes. Yeah, so as, as you know, for typically, historically, many of these cultural assets um, were considered very high society. And that's sort of good, by the way, because it also helps propagate the valuations of this. But what's fascinating is that you're starting to see this everywhere, right? It's, it's sort of like that, that, it's sort of like you probably are finding a lot of great assets now in the flea market, right? And, and it could be things, uh, you know, we wrote about this, about how to, how to kind of start getting into this. And, and basically, these things are starting to sprout out in many different iterations and forms. And as, again, a, a country and as a culture and as a civilization expands, there's just going to be more offshoots of of these opportunities that exist and they ha you're right they have to exist for everyone and you're seeing um millennials gravitate that are now finally getting to a stage where they have some earning power they're they're maybe not going to be interested in let's say like high art but they might be interested in let's say baseball cards because that's what they were doing and and that's what you're starting to see is that you're starting to see some very legitimate asset classes within the culture asset um, start to sprout out. And, and that's going to create more opportunities for, for everyone, right? We, I, I've, I've been saying this sometimes. I periodically tweet about this. It's like, I rather own, you know, a good rare Pokemon card than a house now. And who would ever thought that people would be saying such things? And I thought that in our previous piece, I had highlighted that the, the consumption versus the investor perspective, which was that it seemed like Pokemon Go was like the hottest game uh, a few years ago. Ironically, maybe that two, three years ago, yeah. when you sh when you should have just been buying the assets, you, you would have got the sheer joy of it. Um, it seemed like it was even cheaper because it, it looked like those Pokemon Go guys were uh, wasting a lot of energy. And you could have just basically bought some of this stuff on the cheap and you'd be a millionaire by now. And obviously this connects to me because it's one of those assets in which I like I have the Wayne Gretzky card that you're starting to really see value for it. And um, who'd ever thought that you could get like that kind of ROI in, in that period of time, because you're not necessarily guaranteed that with other asset classes. So that's what, that's, what's so interesting. It's the fact that you can get stuff on the cheap. There's going to be new subcultures within the culture asset space that are going to sprout out 
and you can start to really monetize that, buy things on the cheap. You don't even need leverage for that. Um, but then as the asset becomes higher grade and higher quality, and once you can start to like, kind of like institutionalize that and put more paper to it, which is like companies and stuff like that, then you start to really see more value for that. Just like I was referring to houses or real estate under a company, mm. the same, the same premise can apply. And that's when it becomes super exciting and attractive, uh, at this period of time. So Peter, one of the phrases uh, that you came out with recently, which got me thinking was um, don't beat the system from within, beat the system from without. Tell us a little bit more about what you mean by that. Well, you know, that's going to be probably the primary thesis of, of this piece or an upcoming piece, which is basically a reflection on, on this, this class war that's happening uh, between basically the, the rich and the poor. Um, the objective is to almost, it almost seems advantageous right now to not be a participant of this class war because you're going to get yourself into a lot of hot water. A great analogy of that is uh, the juxtaposition between the Robinhood and the hedge fund. Hedge funds underperforming and he might implode and the Robinhood guy is going to get super regulated. And because he's so obviously Robin Hood that uh, I don't think there's going to be a long-term um, payoff for, for this guy. And, it, and the, the solution to that is almost to act like the hedge fund, to have an understanding of what the Robin Hood is doing and, and, and conduct yourself in that manner. But again, then there's less visibility, uh, hence why you're a participant within the invisible economy and why you're not so obviously part of a, a participant within this class war. You're not the hedge fund, which people are indicting and why people are discussing about, you know, Occupy movements. And you're not part of this Robin Hood group that more than likely is going to get screwed because they've made it so clear of who they are. And the benefit, again, is to be invisible, understand what's happening within, within the system but then to find ways to beat it without. And that great example, again, is with the cultural assets in which you clearly know what's happening, you're benefiting from it, but then you're not really participating in all the shenanigans that are happening between short squeezes versus uh, heavy short positions. So you, you kind of clear yourself of that. You sort of also clear yourself with the necessity of even leverage, but you benefit from everything that's financializing. It's something that you could keep in your safety box if need be. Um, it might limit its value by doing so because obviously you can paper it up again, but um, you know, it's something that you could keep. So it's unaccounted for. Uh, potentially could also be very beneficial from a tax perspective as well. That's just one more example of being top class or almost like an invisible person that transcends class overall between the rich and the poor and allows you to basically do things discreetly and it allows you the benefits of everything that's going on in our world mm. especially when you don't need to choose one particular type of asset and associate with these cultural assets because that represents your culture if you can think objectively and look at what's what's going on there ah that's interesting yeah there is a, a regional component i think um when you're thinking about some of these cultures and why these assets exist for some cultures as opposed to others you have to understand that there's a little bit of scalability there's a benefit in developed economies because of the fact that that's how you have what, what people don't understand the difference basically between a developed economy and a less developed economy is the fact that it, it is just that much more diverse. There's just so much more um, quote unquote opportunities. And that's what you want to seek. Uh, you, you like this space because it sounds like the hockey card market is bigger than many countries. And therefore, and the great thing is it's not bound to any country in particular. I, I could be here in Southeast Asia holding my Wayne Gretzky rookie card. And wow, you just basically transcended um everything so be very cognizant of that be cognizant about 
countries that have scale, one way to measure that is via language and obviously the monopolization of its currency and its dominant position within the, the space. But the great thing is you want to basically that expression, be a small fish in a big pond. And that's how you're invisible because it's hard to be invisible if you're big in a small pond. Okay, it was a great conversation. Uh, thanks very much, Peter. Let's do it again very soon. Join us for more at freemarketmessiah.substack.com.